You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 80, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is sort of me. I appeared with Aaron Pomerantz on his show, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Snarkiness, where he wanted to have a discussion on mandatory vaccines and essentially the role of government when it comes to medicine. Uh, we're not going to go into the healthcare system as much as we're going to discuss various issues of individual liberty and where your liberties and your rights end and where someone else's begin. I think a great example of this is the mandatory vaccines. Can you mandate them? Can you say that you're a liability or danger to all society if you're not vaccinated? Or are you free to do whatever you want because it's your body? Uh, there is definitely an argument to be made. I think a libertarian argument but certainly an argument just in personal freedom either way. And so we get into that discussion and sort of where we draw the lines. And as is always in the show, I think I find it more and more, there is, it is a nuanced answer. It's somewhat subjective as are most things in life. I'd like to make one quick correction in the interview. You'll hear me mention Pott's disease as an, as an alternative form of dementia, or at least one of the subclasses of dementia. I meant to say Pick's disease. You can clearly show that I'm an anesthesiologist and actually an internist. I mentioned Pott's disease, which is a completely different disease process. But anyways, I meant to say Pick's disease. It does not change really the point of the argument, but just to put that out there right now. So I hope you enjoy the interview. I would recommend that you, if you do not currently, that you subscribe to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Snarkiness. Aaron's a great host, has all kinds of interesting subjects, and my most favorite recently is the four-part series, which is kind of long, but it was on ranking the U.S. presidents from best to worst, or I think actually it went from worst to best, uh, which is very entertaining. He and his friend uh, did that. Uh, so check out the show. Enjoy this show. And of course, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the paradox. That's T H E P R A D O C S. If you've not already subscribed to the paradox and you're just listening to this through link through email or perhaps through a Facebook post, please subscribe. It costs nothing. And that way you don't miss any of the exciting episodes as they come up. I apologize. It's been a couple of weeks since I did a show just because I had a few guests lined up who suddenly could not make it. So anyway, I'm trying to catch up a little bit on that. I do have some additional content if you are going to the Patreon page and you're becoming a patron of the show as I continue the Amash files, although it may turn into something a little bit more than that in, if we, in the near future. But without further ado, 
my discussion on vaccines and the role of the regulators and laws with Aaron Pomerantz on life, liberty, and the pursuit of snarkiness. Enjoy. So vaccines. Vaccines are entering the news a lot lately. They enter the news generally anytime something uh, dangerous happens with the world of disease. So of course, with the coronavirus scaring everybody, vaccines have entered again. There's also a new study released today, actually, as we're recording this, that says that uh, upwards of a third of parents do not get their children vaccinated or do not get their children vaccinated on time. The popular perception of the issue of vaccination tends to be that libertarians are anti-vaxxers, or at best, we, we don't think the government should have anything to do with vaccines. There's a lot of stuff about conspiratorial mindedness, uh, that is conspiracy theories, the idea that we just don't like authority at all. So of course, we don't trust the government or we don't trust the doctors, we don't trust big pharma, we don't just trust anybody. Whether or not that's true has yet to be determined, but it does raise a valid question, right? Should we require vaccines? What is the libertarian response to potential health crises? And there is a discussion to be had. So we've brought Dr. Eric Larson back onto the podcast to discuss these issues. He's a doctor in Grand Rapids and host of the Paradox podcast, where he often tackles issues of you know, medical concern, but also brings in ideas like a free market perspective, or at the very least, uh, an on the ground perspective, which is very nice when we're dealing with normally someone who's never who's never had a shred of medical education, telling us what we should do in the medical field, like any debate on healthcare in Washington. So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate it. I love your show. I, uh, you know, I binge on various shows and yours is one of them. And I really, and I, you know, I appreciate being on and I, hopefully we can figure some stuff out today. Yeah, hopefully it's, it's a very complicated topic, certainly. So first off, just, you know, right, right from the get go, let's, let's talk about vaccines just a little bit. Do, would you encourage people to get them? Are they effective? Are, are you skeptical about, about vaccines? Are, are doctors in general as pro-vaccine as at least the media narrative tells us they are? Well, I guess, you know, the quick answer is yes. No. So uh, I think uh, to a number of those questions, are vaccines, uh, would I recommend them? I would. And, you know, when it comes to, the, like, say, the flu vaccine every year, you know, there's the influenza out there and people are at risk for getting the flu. Uh, most people are not at risk for dying from the flu. I mean, certainly some, a lot of people do. Thousands do die from the flu. They're generally the old or the extremely sick for some reasons, uh, immunocompromised people. But if anything, it prevents you from having as much weight, you know, loss in you know, earning for, for work. So it keeps you, keeps you, you know, working. Uh, even if the vaccine is not fully effective, it is often gives you some partial immunity. So you have like, you know, you don't get quite as sick. You don't miss quite as many days at work. And so, and I personally experienced it a couple of times that the influence is extremely common. And every year the virus mutates slightly. There are a number of different strains and that's, you know, immunological discussion, which is sort of beyond my scope as an anesthesiologist. Just suffice to say that you can get partial immunity because some of the proteins are similar and you're, you can protect, produce some antibodies that are similar enough that gives you some protection from it. And so I recommend vaccines. My children get vaccinated. I'm married to a pediatrician, so I have a very pro-vaccine household that I live in. <laughs> so, but I would say, you know, as a libertarian, there are definitely some issues when it comes to vaccinations and any sort of, anytime you require things or add a mandatory tag to it, I think, you know, you have to consider sources of information and 
the actual, you know, political ramifications of whatever it is that you're promoting. Yeah, definitely. So I'm not obviously not a medical professional. I, that's that's probably the thing I say the most on the show, period. It's like, <laughs> I am not a professional in X, but here's my opinion on it anyway. But I am a professional in psychology, so I can at least talk to this. I've, I've started some research on vaccine attitudes. Uh, so I, I definitely have my own perspective on where this is coming from. And that is going to kind of inform uh, where, I, where I take this. And it does inform my own perspective on it. But I, I, I at least find sometimes that it does lead me uh, to question some things on both sides. So like, yeah, I'm pro-vax, but I don't want to force people to get them. On the other hand, sometimes what I see in the research, especially what is what is linked to uh, vaccine attitudes, that scares me. And then I have to remind myself, no, I'm a libertarian. I don't believe in this. And so it's definitely a challenge sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's that dichotomy you have, right? I mean, there just because something is good doesn't mean it has to be mandatory. Uh, is there what sort of risks and benefits are involved? And, and these are questions we ask ourselves all the time in medicine, right? I mean, anytime you sort of embark on a treatment and a vaccine would be considered a treatment, a preventative one, you know, much like you should go running. Well, if the only place you can run is in the median of a freeway, maybe it's not a, you know, maybe the benefit from it is not that great, right? But, you know, you can, you know what I mean? I mean, there are, there's, you have to ask yourself what the actual risks and benefits are to whatever treatment you, you're involved in. And vaccines are very controversial because I think the hardest thing is, is to find causality. And this is not just in medicine. We find this in every life, right? Something happens and you look for the reason it happened. Right, you're walking down the street. Something hits you in the head. Well, you, you know, depends what it. But let's say it's a, you know, a branch. Well, you assume it's just the branch broke off the tree. But maybe there's someone standing up in the tree and they drop the branch in your head. Right. So you look, you say, oh, yeah. it's that guy. Well, maybe it just broke and it just happened to be a person standing, you know, in the tree too. Right. I mean, so sometimes causality is not as obvious as it is. And I will say, in medicine specifically, we have a hard time as individuals, and and I add myself into this as anyone else to try and figure out why certain things happen to you. Sometimes it's just bad luck, right? Some part of your body just is not function properly or doesn't function optimally. It's not repairing genes properly, and so you get cancer. Or you have some weird ache in your leg and you can't remember anything that you did that would have caused this sort of achiness. And, you know, you get older, and as you get older, your body starts to break down and things start happening. And so I will have oftentimes people complain about, oh, I have this back pain. Well, I got an epidural for uh, a baby two years ago. I think it's probably from that epidural. Well, I can't say to you with a straight face as a physician say, there's absolutely no chance that that epidural did not cause some sort of scarring that takes a couple years later that causes a little bit of tugging or pulling in some sort of you know musculoskeletal component that causes this ache that you have. It's probably not. You probably twisted funny. You lifted up a laundry basket or whatever. There are a million other things you could have done. But we're always looking for explanations for things when oftentimes it's unknowable. Then when you have large groups that have mysterious things happen, and I think you know, autism is a great example of this, you just latch on to something. And then if someone can come up with a credible theory or one that people find enough people find credible, then it's sort of, you know, these theories can sort of take hold. And then if you can't, you can't uh, disprove the negative, right? And so that's what oftentimes causes problems as far as trying to convince people one way or the other. And so I think that oftentimes is, it's the fact that pe- things happen to people that are unexplainable, that we can't explain with medicine because things may just happen when you just, you know, we don't totally under- understand everything. And so then we latch on to sort of explanations that may or may not be valid. Yeah, my, my dad's a doctor and he has this entire category of it's, it's one of them things. Totally. There's a weird bump on my skin. He's like, well, it's not cancer. Well, what is it? One of them bumps. 
<laughs> it's, it's it's interesting you bring up the the autism uh, excuse though, because this is this is this is actually every time I teach statistics, I always use this as an example um, because it's a, a, a illusory correlation, right? Like, yeah, autism rates rose with vaccines because people were living longer. That was the secret third cause, right? The people are living longer, they're surviving longer. There, there's no scientifically credible causal link between vaccination and autism. But there is the idea also that the autism spectrum is widening. People were, 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 were redefining it and we're, were getting more sensitive to it. But no one ever wanted to think about that. That was just, oh, vaccines cause autism. And people still think that even though it's been pretty categorically disproven. Wakefield got in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah, I mean, he falsified lots of data. Um, it, you know, and yeah. the only link to autism and to anything is the one link is that that generally older men are more likely to have children with autism. You know, is that something, and maybe that goes to your point that, you know, people are living longer, they're having children later in life. Maybe there's a little higher link there. I know there was a study that linked the use of uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac and uh, during pregnancy that there's a higher incidence of autism. I, I tend to think, and I, again, this is just a speculation, but I suspect that autism, much like dementia, it's multifactorial or there are a multitude of disease diseases that are occurring that are just not classified separately, right? So you have maybe 20 different problems uh, and then we just lump them all into say, well, it's autism or some of the spectrum, right? And it's, po it's possibly 20 different things that are caused by 20 different, you know, maybe it's a genetic, maybe it's environmental, maybe it's, you know, some combination. It's kind of a garbage diagnosis in some ways. There, there are a lot of things we have in medicine where we just can't explain exactly what, what we call, would call the pathophysiology of, of the disease. And this would be one where just you can't really, I think we can't find any link, but I think it's pretty clear it's not vaccines. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to dissuade people from that because there's someone had a study and, and, you know, it's incident seems to be increased. When I was a kid, we just kind of called those kids a little bit funny. Right. And now there's actually a diagnosis that goes along with them or, you know, Asperger's or something like that. Right. It's. Well, that's, that's the funny thing is Asperger's, uh, as per the DSM five is now in the autism spectrum, DSM four TR Asperger's was its own thing. So it's, it's really funny because you say, I suspect that it's, it's 20 different things. But if you look at the history of the DSMs, it's not a suspicion. It's pretty definitely demonstrable that they just keep lumping things. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It, there's a, it helps people get treatment and all that. But it's absolutely just, oh, well, there are a lot. There's a spectrum. And you may, the causes on one side of the spectrum may not be the same as on the other. Yeah. And I mean, like, again, like the dementia, there's Alzheimer's, there's POTS disease. Or, there are a number of things that are caused a different disease process, which cause the same manifestations of, of dementia. So maybe it's a buildup of amyloid in your brain. Or maybe it's uh, problems with your kidney clearing certain proteins. And, but it, the ultimate effect is it causes dementia. You know, the actual causes of it are different, and sort of the, the etiology or the reason that you get it is, is different. But the end result is a dementia of some sort. Um, but we don't actually need to define specifically what the disease process in general because we don't have any treatment for any of them. But, you know, as you try and from a pharmaceutical standpoint, try and figure out how to something actually works, then maybe you can find a way to treat it. Anyway, I mean, it's a long story to basically just say there are a lot of things we just can't explain. And I think, you know, it's not fair to just blame some random thing that, well, everyone's getting this now and they weren't getting before. I mean, there are lots of things we get now that are, you know, the, in, the incidence of asthma has increased. Is that due to vaccinations? I don't know. I don't think anyone's ever make that, made that link, but you can certainly do that. Maybe it's a, the instance of the fact that we had Cheetos now. We didn't have Cheetos in the 1950s and now we have more, you know, autism. Is it due to Cheetos? I mean, no one's made that link either, right? So 
and obviously like this isn't your your field so it's not, this, i'm not going to ask you for like a in-depth detailed explanation of how vaccines work but there's one particular part of it i do want to discuss because it it really informs how i wrestle with this as a libertarian and that's the idea of herd immunity that i think that really informs the debate and so can you explain a little bit just, just super simply how, how herd immunity works and how it relates to vaccines I, I guess the, the easiest way of describing herb immunity is that it's by decreasing the incidence of some sort of disease process that's infectious in a large community or population, the, the chance of you contracting it if you are someone who's unaffected by this disease before is a lot less, right? So the more people who have a protection and are, are prevented from getting this disease, the less likelihood is going to be of other people contracting it who might be at risk. So clearly, if you walk into a room and 50% of the people in there have influenza, right, the flu, the chance of you coming out with it, the flu is incredibly high. It's, someone's going to sneeze in that general area, you know, the virus is active for a couple, I don't think hours in the air or whatever. Uh, but if you go into a room with 10,000 people and one person has the flu, the likelihood of you getting the flu is a lot less because you, your chance of interacting with that one person who has it. And so herd immunity is essentially just saying we, if we decrease the amount of people who have something, the chance of me contracting it is a lot less. And this would go for all sorts of things, and not just you know infectious diseases. You could say it's infectious ideas, right? If no one believes in communism, you're unlikely to to walk out of a room becoming a communist, right? But uh, or vice versa, right? I mean, so it, it's this it's the same sort of principle. I really wish there was a vaccine against communism. But, well, it, uh, it would but, hopefully be history books, but it doesn't always work. Yeah, no, well, no, it 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 definitely does not. Um, I bring up herd immunity, and there there are maybe a couple other topics like it I bring up, but specifically herd immunity because when when people make the case for mandatory vaccination, the idea is that you have compromised the herd immunity by not getting your kid vaccinated, and it almost I mean not necessarily in the media because I don't think anyone in in the current media cycle would want to put something this thoughtfully. But it almost becomes like a natural rights argument, I think, because there is the idea that, you know, your rights end where mine begin. And, you know, you don't have a right to compromise all of our herd immunity just because you don't want to get your kid vaccinated, especially if it's on, you know, the bad science of the autism link or the dangerous naivete of assuming that, oh, measles isn't that bad or something like right. that. Um, so you don't have a right to hurt my kids, you know. Because you don't want to do this. You, you are hurting us all, essentially, by compromising the herd immunity. And I'm not sure if I buy that argument, but I'm also not sure I don't buy that argument. It's something I really, I really wrestle with. Uh, it's certainly why I would make the moral case for someone getting vaccinated. And I, just because you, know, you don't want the government doing something doesn't mean that you don't, <laughs> you don't right. want to pressure people into doing it anyway. Like, yeah, I don't think the government should mandate schooling either. I certainly am going to pressure people into that. Uh, so what 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 do you think about that? That idea that well, you're you're hurting you you are potentially hurting people by not getting your kids vaccinated. I mean, I think there's some validity to that. I mean, it's it is true that if if more people walking around who are carrying a disease that's infectious, that the likelihood of other people getting it is higher. I mean, I think there's that's that's easily provable. The question that you wrestle with, I guess, really is, um, you know, what what value is that herd immunity to others? How much of a threat are you? to being not vaccinated uh, to others who aren't or who are, or, you know, just because, so I guess you need to back up a little bit to how vaccines work. And the easiest explanation is that vaccines uh, have different effectiveness levels, right? Some vaccines are extremely effective and some are not. So some vaccines rely more on what we'd say herd immunity. Mm -hmm. So they're, 
their protection they, they offer is a maybe maybe like I was saying explaining earlier about the flu that it just that oftentimes it provides a partial protection. And so if everyone is partially protected, if everybody got the flu vaccine, the likelihood that you'd be infectious for as long as you would be or as, you know, have as, you know, much of a viral load when you like sneeze, would might be reduced, and so your the rate of infection is a lot less. And so that herd immunity would be more important for something that like the flu that where maybe your protection is not 100% like it is for some others. Some vaccines are extremely effective and they're almost like 100%. And so you could have a large portion of the population that doesn't have, isn't vaccinated, and it's not as important because the likelihood of someone walking around with it is a lot less, if that makes sense. Uh, and so then the question really becomes, when you're talking about specific disease process, because we're talking about different sorts of viruses or uh, bacterial infections, you know, how dangerous are you? How infectious are you? I think the, the best way to go about this is to say, let's say I'm, I was a nuclear engineer as an undergrad. So let's say I walk around with a large radioactive isotope that's ex- that's extremely dangerous in my pocket. Okay, uh, it's beta radiation. It's lethal dose. If I can walk around with it for a couple days uh, before I succumb to the radiation effects, but if I stand next to you, I give you a hug, or I shake your hand and we hang out for an hour, I'll give you a dose of radiation that's so lethal you'll you will die. Okay, so uh, what right do I have walking around with that sort of you know, radioactive size. Now, maybe I know I'm going to die, and so I don't really care about you or anyone in the room. I'm, you know, a sociopath. Do I have the right to walk around with this lethal, you know, radiation dose that's guaranteed to kill you? I don't know what level of libertarian you'd have to be or someone. I think it'd be easy to say that that's someone who is, uh, does not have the right to do that. You are such a threat to an immediate threat and to everyone else that you don't have the right to do that. Now, what level is someone who is not vaccinated? What threat level do they have? Well, I think that really depends on the situation, right? Can I walk into a football stadium and you're on the other side of the stadium and I'm not unvaccinated and you, or I'm unvaccinated and you're, you know, and you're on the other side and you're maybe potentially be contagious? Well, the risk to you is almost zero, right? Because there's no way my cough is going to get to you on the other end of the football stadium. But let's say you're someone who is immunocompromised. Let's say you just got a you have a kidney transplant, and so you're on medications that suppress your immune system, so you're highly susceptible to diseases. Clearly, uh, you're more likely to, to catch stuff. You know, The risk to you to going out and about is a lot higher, uh, so you have to be more careful. And maybe you're immunocompromised and you're not even able to, to tolerate a vac- getting a vaccine because some sort of vaccines have sort of parts of live viruses that you could get, it could kill you. This is a long answer, winded answer, saying that, that it's, it really depends, right? And so I think... I think you could, in a libertarian society, let's say everyone has the right to do whatever, probably in open space, if you're someone who's so immunocompromised that anything could kill you, well, then it probably behooves you to, to avoid contact with the public. Because even if everyone's vaccinated 100%, there's still you know, a million things that can kill you from other infectious diseases, right? So you need to be, protect yourself and, and be aware. You know, does that mean someone who's immunocompromised can't go out and about in, during flu season? Maybe, you know, because that's highly contagious, it's out and about, and you need to be careful. But does it mean if you are a pediatrician's office and you say, we've got all kinds of sick kids, some are immunocompromised because they have you know, congenital dis- disorders, we don't want someone who's, someone who's unvaccinated who's potentially carrying you know, measles or whatever because that's a th- direct threat and danger to our patient population. You know, maybe it's best for us to not allow those people into our business, you know, into our practice. I don't think that's an unreasonable position. I think you could have the same position as, and say, as a pediatrician, we really want to make sure we have all those people because we think there's a value to us seeing those patients and maybe convincing them that they should partially vaccinate or whatever. 
it's a wishy-washy answer, but I think it's kind of, it's a question that really depends on, on the risks and benefits of, of the situation. And it kind of just depends on you. I, I don't believe as many people make it out to be that if someone is completely unvaccinated walking around, like in, you know, the grocery store, that they are a direct threat to humanity. I don't think that's a reasonable position to have because there are plenty of people who are like that because they can't get vaccinated. And so they are more likely to be carrying infectious diseases and we don't prevent them from being a part out in society. You know, if you have a business, you may decide one way or the other if you think those people are okay. If you run a daycare, maybe you decide. If you run a school, you get to decide. Always becomes tricky when you have government schools. And that's, I know, I'm sure your next question, but uh, that's, you know, that's, I don't know, does that kind of answer your question, I guess? No, it does. It it does. It actually answers mine. And it does kind of answer my next question as well, because with one of our other hosts, Austin, he's, he's, he's the lawyer and he's the pessimist. So obviously with his influence, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of unvaccinated people getting me sick, but I really don't like how they'd apply that logic to guns or how they might apply that logic to, you know, a car that isn't green enough or something like that. And use the exact same with uh, logic of, well, you're a threat and you should be banned. But I, I do like what you're bringing up with, you know, okay, but that doesn't mean you get you, you get unfettered access. Because that's one of the things I see. Uh, I see it on Facebook. I see it in these communities. I see it in some of the research I'm doing. Uh, anti-vaxxers, not all of them. And that's the thing is like I'm using the word anti-vaxxer, but the research from our side of it shows that there's really no such thing as an anti-vaxxer. It's not a it's not, it's not, it's it, that, that's a, that's an unhelpful distinction. I agree. It's a, it's an epithet, right? I mean, I think there are people who are skeptical of vaccines, who want different schedules. They want, they're not sure about them. They have questions and it doesn't, and to just say that, well, they're just anti-vaxxers is lazy. So they do show that, yeah, there's, they're vaccine skeptical people, but there are also like wackadoodles. And yeah, <laughs> sure. Be polite. Every, everywhere they are. Those people are all over the place. And with, with the vaccine movement and the anti-vaccine attitudes they hold uh some of them i would say have delusions of persecution like they'll say i it's it's just it's so awful that i can't get a doctor for my kid you know there's no doctors you know oklahoma has a lot of anti-vaxxers and the, the medical community here from what the people in our local community tell me a lot of doctors especially in okc and norman are just kind of cracking down and they're like you're not vaccinated i'm not treating you I'm not, I'm your denial of, of, of the clear science does not mean I'm letting, like you said, an an immunocompromised kid in my waiting room die. And people go, Oh, there's a delusion of, you know, there's, there's, there are, we're being persecuted where no one, no one's willing to work with us. And on the one hand, I understand that because I, you know, I do, I do want to, it's actually, it's a really funny approach (laughs) in science. It's called the jujitsu approach. I don't know why they called it the jujitsu approach, but it's the idea that we want to tailor interventions to match people and meet people where they're at. We want to persuade people. We don't want to just bully them or legislate them. But on the other hand, you don't want to get people sick. So that, so that is the idea of, well, private businesses have the right to tell you to get the heck out. But as you also brought up, we do have government schools. And that's, that's to me, a little bit more of a tricky question because you don't want to go straight up to high construal level and go in an ideal libertarian society which we're never probably never going to have. And certainly it's not going to come about for a very long time. So what do we do with things like, like government schools? Do you think it's okay for the government to at least say, yeah, you don't, you don't get to send your kid to public school. You don't get to work for the government, all all that sort of thing. Do you, do you think that's okay? At least as a stopgap or, you know, I think this is where you have the discussion within the community. And, you know, the nice thing about generally our, our government schools is that it is kind of community led. 
there are more states and, you know, certainly federal government occasionally weighs on this as well. So, uh, you know, there's, there's research changes. Um, the, the problem, of course, with any sort of government mandates is that it is slow and it's kind of um, behind oftentimes. And so we're always learning new things. So it's entirely possible we say, oh, this vaccine is great. It's the best. It's got no side effects. And then you find out, oh, well, we're wrong. And it's, it's hard to sort of back up that, you know, regula- uh, regulation or mandate. So I think you should always be hesitant about those things. Uh, to back up just one bit about the having the immuno, the person who's unvaccinated in your waiting room, I think the other part about it, and certainly with these physicians who are saying we're just not going to deal with people who are unvaccinated because you know we've tried forever to try and convince these people to get vaccinated, they just won't do it. But I think it it also speaks to trust. If you go to a physician and you're getting treatment for something, and every time you offer you know a treatment. The patient says, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something else. Well, it's sort of like, well, if you're not going to do what I recommend and you don't trust me enough for that, I don't know that this relationship is going to work for us because it's a two-way street, right? And so if you think all vaccines are terrible and they're the wrong thing for your kid and you just don't think that's the wrong – well, if that's if my belief as a practitioner of medicine is that that is the best way to, to treat and protect kids, well, then clearly we're just going to disagree here. So that's another reason why I think people, especially physicians today, we're just not going to – we're just not going to deal with it. It's not to prevent treatment for people as much as it is just say there's clearly a level of trust that we just can't establish. And if we're going to disagree on this basic sort of you know treatment regimen, then I think we're going to go our own way. To get back to the schools, I, I don't know how you pick things. Uh, there's certainly colleges that will have various vaccinations they, they recommend, especially like for, um, for meningitis. There's one that's like a new vaccine, but it's like you need to vaccinate, I believe it's almost like... These are totally the wrong numbers, but 10,000 or 100,000 people, maybe even a million, before you prevent one case of this. And it's a very expensive vaccine. You just have to have this. You can have the door because the last thing they want is some kid to get meningitis. And there's like, oh, why didn't you make fall, force these kids to get vaccinated? Because you could have prevented this death or something like that. Because much like the, the uh, elementaries and high schools, colleges are also Petri dishes. And you tend, to, you tend to have just all kinds of things, just, you know, blue of disease and infectious you know, stuff that's just kind of percolating everywhere. So I think, you know, there, there are questions about whether you should require those sorts of things because there's that risk benefit. And I think the one mistake we make in medicine, which I'm sure we'll talk to you about next, and so I'll just preempt the question, I guess, is that, you know, when you, are vaccines 100% safe? Can anyone bad things happen to people. And I mean, clearly that's not true. I mean, things do happen to people. Uh, they can have allergic reactions. They could, you could be unrecognized as immunocompromised and your immune system is not very strong and something and something could happen. You have a seizure and maybe when you have a seizure, you bump your head and something else happens, right? I mean, there, there are all sorts of things that could happen. The risks for those things are incredibly small usually. And so you'd say, well, the benefits are far outweigh the risks for that. Now, some people say, well, I don't, I want to have a zero risk to my kid, which case I'd say, well, you probably drove in your car to get to the clinic. But, you know, that being aside, right, it's hard for us to sort of figure out risks to, to judge risks because things that are routine, we don't, we, de- we deem unrisky and something we just do, you know, once every six months, we say, well, that's risky, right? You always think twice, get on a plane, but you never think twice, get in the car. Um, so... I think that's always an important thing to keep in mind as well. No, and I, and I like that because I, again, like when I teach statistics, I, I, at this point, I just basically preempt every class I teach with. Yeah, if you are an anti-vaxxer, you are going to have a bad time in any class I teach. This is probably how it's going to work for you because it's a go-to, it's a go-to example, and I and it's safe to make fun of them. Not like literally make fun of them, but like use them as an example. Generally, people aren't going to get offended the same way as if I 
use the political example. Right. But it, it is definitely infuriating to me as I see anti-vax research and especially people basically say, well, I've done my research. And I'm like, I don't care how much time you spent on Wikipedia. There's a reason people go to grad school to read, to, to understand statistics. There's a reason they go to medical school to understand medicine. Like, there's a lot of misinformation and it does really infuriate me because there is a people don't understand what risk analysis is and, and th they rely on heuristics. Like here's this one kid who had this horrible allergic reaction. Do you want this to happen to you? And I'm like, okay, but like, I die from peanuts. Right. I, I have yeah. a severe peanut allergy and having seen what my body does when I have any sort of nut, it's kind of grotesque, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think it's, that would be fair for like me to take pictures of myself as I'm slowly asphyxiating and then use that to say like, you know, baby Ruth, not even once or Snickers, not even once. It, it would, it would be this, it's like, it's just a risk factor. Yeah. One thing I did want to bring up though, also, cause you, we talked about the risks and stuff and I think this ties in cause Psychologically, we found we we say there are three antecedents to into vaccine hesitancy: reactance, which is just a dislike of authority. We've pretty much covered that. Disgust and fear towards blood and needles, and a mistrust of science are also there. But there's also conspiratorial beliefs, and that's a really big one. And big pharma is a thing that comes up a lot, and it's another thing I feel very conflicted about because well. I, I, I generally trust doctors have my best interests at heart. I don't know if I'd say the same about pharmaceutical companies. In fact, for some of them, I definitely would say I know enough to not think they have my best interest at heart. That's why we have, a, you know, have the problems that we do with painkillers. So what, what would you say about the big pharma excuse? Like the idea that, oh, well, big, big pharma doesn't care about you. These vaccines, we can't trust big pharma. We can't trust the people who develop these vaccines uh, that's why we should get rid of them. Yeah, so I guess I'd say Big Pharma is great and Big Pharma is awful. And this is always a problem I run into in my show. It's, you know, every, every answer has to be nuanced. Unfortunately, life isn't black and white, and so it is gray, various shades. And so Big Pharma is a good example. I mean, there are a number of disease processes I learned about. There aren't a whole lot in anesthesia that have to do with infectious diseases, right? So, I mean, generally, I'm putting people to sleep and then waking them up, and, you know, that's pretty much it. But there are certain things that are... You know, the strategies of putting a kid to sleep with Haemophilus influenza B, who has a swelling of the epiglottis and you can't secure their airway. Well, I, I've never seen that because everyone gets the Hib vaccine now as a baby and they just, it just doesn't happen, happen, happen. So, so, so the amount of people dying from this is pretty much zero. It just doesn't happen anymore. And so Big Pharma, whatever you want to call it, the producer of these vaccines has saved many, many lives. It's made our lives better whether it's through, through pain or treating blood pressure or uh, people stay alive much longer after heart attacks. And before you'd have a massive heart attack, you, I mean, your life expectancy was very short. It's no longer the case. And when it comes to vaccines, most of these vaccines are effective or help prevent disease or limit the risks you're going to face in life. Are there things that back the, the pharmaceutical companies have done that have protected themselves from you know, legal action? Yes. Are there laws they pass that are sort of, I wouldn't say nefarious, but certainly ones that are um, not protective of the consumer? Yeah, absolutely. And so in that sense, of big pharma acts like big whatever industry you want to put, insert your name there. They look for government regulation and protections in minimizing their costs from consumers. And consumers in general are much better off because of all these things. But in certain instances, it is harder to get you know, action if for things that happened that were wrong because of things that Big Pharma has done. Likewise, you know, when you look at physicians, people say, well, physicians are in the back 
back pocket of big pharma. Uh, you know, I, without a doubt, physicians treat things, treat disease processes, and medications are oftentimes the treatment of choice because that is the only way to treat. Antibiotics are the way to treat an infection oftentimes. Not always. If it's a viral infection, you maybe have to use other things. So it's entirely reasonable to have physicians treat things. And so uh, there's an expectation when people come in that they get treated with whatever it is uh, that they, you know, your pediatricians talk about all the time. Again, another pediatrician example. But kid comes in for ear infection. They Parents demand antibiotics. They demand some sort of treatment for this. When in fact, maybe it's a viral infection. There's nothing that the kid should get. And that you by giving an antibiotic, well, there's a you know, minuscule risk of an allergic reaction or, you know, certainly to their pocketbook, but, you know, antibiotics generally are pretty cheap. And so it's easier sometimes to just give the antibiotic. Now, that doesn't mean it's right. But also, you know, physicians are probably more likely to write a prescription for medication than someone who's not. And is there is there a financial reward? Maybe a teeny bit, but probably, if anything, it's to keep parents happy and to keep their patients happy. And they are sort of a customer and you want to be seen doing something. And so there's probably a little incentive there on some level but it's pretty small. I think most physicians are professionals and are treat people properly. That being said, there are bad actors, just like, you know, you see that a lot of these laws passed on opioids, which, uh, as I've heard by the opioid crisis and there are these pill mills, these places, people who hand out zillions of, you know, narcotics or you know, opioids to people. Well, there are only a couple of those people, right? I mean, much easier just to say, we're just going to find these people and, you know, take away the license or something like that. Yet the reaction is usually like a moral panic and you pass a bunch of legislation that's going to affect everybody. Yeah. That's generally the way most things happen. And I would say in many respects, the infection things with vaccines and, you know, whether you're going to mandate that everybody has the measles vaccine or whatever it is, you know, I know I think it was New York City that was looking into that. Uh, It is a, you know, a moral panic, just like there's a shooting and now we got to pass gun laws or there's a... A plane flies into a building. We got to pass all these national security measures to try and prevent this. And when and you know you're mentioning statistics, the risk for any of these things happening is in, is maybe perhaps incredibly small, right? Like, do we need to build a giant border wall that's 400 feet tall around a country and not let anybody in and out of the country in order to yeah. prevent anyone from hurting us? Well, I mean, you know, what's the cost of that? What's there's probably and what's the actual risk to an individual? And and so I think those are rarely do we weigh those rationally. I mean, I think most of the decisions are not actually done with reason, right? I think that's, if there's anything you probably, as a psychologist, know, it's mostly, it's mostly emotional sort of things. And, and that's definitely what the news or, you know, what politicians sort of latch onto. And that's how all those things happen. Oh, it's always the first, it's always one of the first things I cover, generally in the first unit of social psych. And it's, it's I'm always surprised at how controversial it is. But I'm like, you do realize most of the thinking, obviously I'm saying this to like my students, I'm like, you do realize that most of the thinking you do is not cognitive, it is not conscious, and it is not thoughtful. It is automatic. Every day I drive myself somewhere and I don't really remember driving myself there because I'm listening to music or thinking about what I'm going to do at work or hoping I, I have enough coffee left over or something like that. Like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm like effortful thought thinking is, not, is, is hard and good decision making is hard. And it's, it's why, it's why I, th- I, see, I see fault on both sides of the debate. It's something I'm seeing a, a lot. I'm really happy to see this from some of the scientific community, especially the, the intersection where you have psychologists working with doctors, where it's, so they're they're having to step outside of the ivory tower a little bit and not immediately go into moral panic mode and assume that all anti-vaxxers are cave people. But on the other hand, yeah. I also see this with vaccine-hesitant people, where I'm like, you're not making a good decision, you're not using good data, please rethink. And especially when some of them try to 
turn it into an evangelical style, not like in terms of religion, but in terms of like they're preaching the gospel of the evils of vaccines. And it just, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, there's part yeah. of me that's like, uh, I'm not sure the government should be doing anything to you though. I do think in the case of, uh, the guy who faked the autism thing, I mean, that that's actively lying. That's different. Well, some of these people, I'm like, oh, no, the government shouldn't be involved, but I think you're going to have some interesting questions to answer to answer one day. You're definitely right. And I think, you know, when it comes to vaccines and people choosing, I, I think the, the medical community for a long time, for one thing, they weren't very active in social media, which is really where a lot of this discussion is occurring. Uh, certainly, because there was a, there's a lot of, you know, I did an episode recently in my show where we just talked about people who were attacked by these, I'll call them lunatics. They're people who are just a religious fervor to just destroy anyone who disagrees with them. And this is not, they happen to be people who are opposed to vaccines and they would use a global attack, like in this, you know, flooding phone lines, hitting Yelp reviews, Google. I mean, it was disingenuous uh, discussion about vaccinations. These are people who weren't patients of this practice, but this practice put out a PSA basically. It was actually a TikTok. <laughs> and, uh, I think it was actually, I think that was a TikTok. Anyway, uh, just saying, you know, vaccine's a good idea. We support them, blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual sort of thing you get from this thing. And they were attacked mercilessly and in attacked with, and not in good faith. But I think by being out there now, the one risk that physicians have and people who are, you know, advocates for vaccines or whatever the treatment might be is that they become impatient and they treat people who disagree with them as imbeciles. Because these are people in general. I mean, I certainly know from this, in our area where we are, I live in suburban Grand Rapids, fairly affluent. Most of the people who are rejecting vaccines are not people who have no money or who have no education. It's people with college education, right? I mean, there are people who are who can read something and they say, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Why vaccines cause X, Y, or Z? I'm not going to do it." And you have to convince these people. And the the worst way to convince someone is to say you're an idiot. You know, you're totally wrong, right? I mean, that's probably the worst way to, to make convince anybody. And, and especially in today, today's age, right, where you, if you want to say, hey, I'm the elite, you listen to me, that's probably not going to work very well with most people. And so it's going to cause failure to adopt whatever it is, stance you have. And so I think it's, a, it's difficult, right? Because the hard thing to do is to t sit down and answer the same question you've answered 400,000 times, right? The fact that you know, vaccines do this, why that, there's a risk and benefit, blah, blah, blah. And it's easy when the way medicine is structured to just say, just do it, you're an idiot for not doing it. Or you just get impatient because you've answered the same question 40 times, right? That's the hard thing. And not everybody's well-equipped to do that. Some people are really good at that, just like you have good teachers and bad teachers. The good teachers can ask, explain the same concept again and again and not get frustrated. But not every teacher is like that. And so... Uh, I think that's the that's the hardest thing with medicine, and I think you see that in everything too, right? Whether it's you know climate change or you know economics or whatever people talk about, they just get frustrated at some point, and they just say, "Just you're all idiots, just shut up." Yeah. I'm right, just just deal with it. And it's just not a very persuasive technique. And unfortunately, you're not encountering everybody every time you say that. Or the first you know your ten times you did a reason logical explanation, and so that eleventh time is maybe somebody's just heard it for the first time, and the first thing they hear is you saying they're an idiot. Well, they're gonna, you know, dig in their heels, and they're gonna now they're convinced there's something afoot, right? There's something something wrong. It's just like if there's a you know legal case against someone and they settle, just because it's just settling, it does not mean that someone's in the right or the wrong. It just means that you said, yeah, we made an economic analysis. It's more expensive to fight this than it is not to. Doesn't mean we were wrong. Yeah, maybe you were. It's hard to say, but just because there's a settlement does not necessarily mean one way or the other that 
something, you know, was someone was at fault, perhaps, but not always. Well, yeah, and I think it's made all the more complex because of social media. You have, and it's not just vaccines. There's a lot of issues. You have people who think they're informed who aren't. So it's not like the it's not like the pro-vax versus the anti-vax. It's the followers, and this gets diffused. And I mean, you see this with economics too. You see people say, but it basically becomes, well, my experts are smarter than your experts. Right. And now, of course, you do have to do that sometimes. Like, but there is that risk of technocracy. And that's kind of the last thing I want to talk about is, this, you know, Woodrow Wilson's idea of technocracy, idea of rule by the educated, the elite. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of people fear with the vaccine question. But on the other hand, like when you're a doctor, you know, I, I generally do what my doctor tells me. And even when I don't, it's gen- it's not because I think they're wrong. It's because some I forget or I'm lazy or, you know, I, I am making a stupid decision that we all make. Uh, but I, I, I don't think I know better than my doctor uh, on these issues. How do we avoid like tr- slipping into a, well, we're the elite, you should listen to us, but also avoid, you know, well, your opinion is totally valid and you have a right to it. And ergo, you can make really stupid decisions that potentially could harm other people. Yeah, well, I think it comes down again to risks and benefits of, of whatever it is we're advocating. So if you're saying, well, th- I think you really should get this vaccine, it's not going to protect you, it's going to generally protect other people. And um, you say, well, I'll take my chances, right? Maybe that's an, an, not an unreasonable decision. Uh, whereas, you know, you're basically w- walking around with a radioisotope and you're going to kill people if you walk into the room. So let's say, I mean, let's say we had e- an Ebola-like virus that was very lethal, but it waited a little bit longer to kill you, right? So there's always that sort of the claim about the super, super bug that or virus that is can kill people, but it's infectious enough and kills them slow enough that they can have opportunity to transmit to other people, right? That causes pandemic. Uh, but then we had a vaccine that would prevent people from that hundred percent, let's say prevention of, of, of the, of the infection. Would you then say it's okay to mandate it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a reasonable discussion to have because there are, no matter how libertarian you are, I think you have to look into the actual risks of it. But you have to be pretty certain that that's actually the case, right? I mean, I think there are certain things that are mandated that aren't. And so it is a it is a difficult balancing act to decide what the true risks and benefits are of something, and to determine where the where your rights end and begin. Because I think, like you said, you have a right to have your opinion. You have a right to be wrong. And it's it's sort of like. I think vaccines, when it comes to children, we have a we have a reasonable expectation of protecting children because they are unable to protect themselves oftentimes. And, you know, where is that cutoff? Like, if you don't feed your kid, they will die. So we have rules for, you know, that's child abuse if you don't feed your children, if you don't, you know, give them enough food. Uh, and there are definitely people who don't that are, I mean, not many, but there are some. And so those people, I think most people would say, yeah, that person should go to jail, lose their kids or whatever for starving their child. I'm not saying that's the case with vaccines, but I think those are the those are considerations you have because we have to take all these things into account. It makes it really tricky. And there's not an and I wish I could just say yes or no or I mean and every vaccine's different and so you know you met brought up the topic at the very beginning of the show about the percentage of people who are vaccinated or are not on schedule. Well, not on schedule just could mean they just missed an appointment. It could mean that they just got behind or, you know, they went on vacation and so now they're trying to catch up. And so it may not be like that many people are actually not getting vaccinated. It may be much less than than sort of what that statistic suggests. And just because they're recommended, you may say, I'm going to get every vaccine. But you know what? I'm not worried about HPV, which is human papillomavirus, because I'm not worried about cervical cancer. You know, it's a boy. 
And you know, what if he gives his wife cervical cancer, whatever, or he's never going to have, you know, maybe he's never going to have sex with another woman. And so it'll just be one. And they'll, they'll, you know, there's no chance of any transmission of human papillomavirus because they'll be first time they'll be together is on their wedding night. And they'll never have met, been with another person and the rest of their lives. If that's the case, then probably they wouldn't. Right. But that's making a lot of assumptions. And so anyway, those are the decisions that I think people need to sort of come in informed. And that's hopefully a discussion you can have with someone who is knowledgeable enough about vaccines and you know, generally be a, you know, your doctor. But I think these are all, these are all tricky questions. And unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all answer for it, which I hope I'm not disappointing your audience with not giving you the correct answer. For most things, we end up arriving at the answer of, well, it's complicated. And, <laughs> oh, it's, Tough thing about life. Yeah, it's, 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 it's more nuanced than that. But no, I, I like what you're saying. I think it's really important to keep in mind. It's, it's something I find, especially as a minarchist, and I, back when I first became a libertarian, I didn't think there would be so many distinctions. I didn't realize that the greatest enemy of libertarians is other libertarians, and <laughs> I, I have definitely <laughs> seen that now. But as a minarchist libertarian who does believe there is government, I do. I, I mean, yeah, it's, you haven't given me the correct answer because I think it's something I'll have to wrestle with for a long time. You know, the government does have an authority to protect people. That's literally its only job is protecting us from each other, not from ourselves, but from each other. So well, where, where does that leave me, at least on the issue of vaccines? I'm not entirely sure as far as government goes, mm-hmm. as far as like me, my children, my personal circle yeah <laughs> well and and i would argue that even if you're an anarchist you have the same discussions right i mean because again if you're an anarchist you don't believe in any government and protection you're going to use private police or whatever and you you can sue people for people who call it create harm right i mean that that's still even in an anarchist society if you violate my rights by you know killing me that's obviously the ultimate violation you have the same sort of issues where you walk someone's walking out on the street and they've got you know plutonium in their pocket or something like that i mean it you still have to have remedies for these things. You still have to have difficult discussions about them. And so I don't think whatever government option you choose from a totalitarian to none, there is going to be nuanced and there's going to be difficulty in sort of arriving at the best possible solution. And because the biggest problem is we all assess risk differently. Some people are risky people and some people aren't. Some people are completely comfortable driving 150 miles an hour down the freeway and others are like, yeah, 65 is as fast as I go because I'm worried about And, and they're both right, and they're both wrong. It, it sometimes sucks when you have to arrive at that conclusion, but I, 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 th- I think you're right. And it's a discussion we have to have, uh, and it has to be a very personal discussion because not every anti-vaxxer is the same, not every pro-vaxxer is the same. Yeah, I think you know the, the important thing to take away from today is to be thoughtful in your discussions with people about this because it's not – because I think people are not disingen- – most people are not disingenuous in their beliefs one way or the other. And I think we just need to recognize that everyone's got their own history, their own reasons for feeling a certain way, and their own information they're coming to the conversation with, not only just with vaccines, but with pretty much anything, right? And so you need, I would like for us to sort of approach each other with love and understanding and to just recognize that we're all different and we need to just discuss this sort of rationally. I know that doesn't always happen, especially online when it's all anonymous, but I would hope that we don't always assume the worst in people, that they have the worst of intentions. Assume people have good intentions because generally they, they do. Not always, but generally they do. And so that's probably the best way to, the best way initial reaction to whatever sort of encounter you have with someone on this subject. I also think it is important to make sure, and it, it starts with yourself, like anything does, that your information is good and that, you, that you, you're sticking to your, your area of expertise. And 
I, I think the most frustrating thing that I've seen, at least in, on, sometimes in both sides, actually, because I've seen some genuinely terrible pro-vaccine arguments, uh, is people who they confuse Wikipedia for research. They confuse what they're able to do. You know, oh, I found like three three of the the, mo- the most widely available research papers. I'm like, but are you trained in research? Like, <laughs> you can you can be a really good accountant and have no freaking clue what to get out of a science paper. Just like I'm a psychologist, and if I were gonna, I, I don't know if accountants have journals, but if they did, I don't think I'd know what the heck <laughs> Boy, they were talking about. Would that be about. boring, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, or I, I, I can read a social science journal pretty easily. We all speak the same language. I, I, I read engineering reports, and I'm like, this isn't my language anymore. And, yeah. and I, I don't get to claim that, oh, because just because I have an expertise in one area means I have an expertise in another. So recognizing and coming in good faith, but also having the ability to reflect and the humility to sometimes admit when something, when you're wrong about something or when there is nuance to something is, is also important. But, well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast this week. I really appreciate it. I've wanted been wanting to do this issue for a long time and couldn't have done it with anyone better. So it was an absolute pressure, Aaron. Thank you so much. And we know that vaccines are a controversial topic. So Obviously, we'd love to hear from you guys. Hopefully, uh, we haven't offended anyone either by being too anti-vax or too pro-vax or too lukewarm, I guess. But if you do have questions or comments or you want to reach out, uh, do feel free to send us an email or send us a Facebook message at Liberty Snark. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, that's about it for this episode. We'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.